Hello, this is Monica Reeds. I'm Georgina Godwin. And my guest today is Disha Filior, an American writer, essayist and public speaker. Her debut collection of short stories, The Secret Lives of Church Ladies, is an award-winning collection. It explores the lives and relationships of black women and girls in the US and the tension between their own needs and desires and the expectations set for them by the church and by society. He's won numerous awards, including the 2021 Penn Faulkner Award and the 2021 Story Prize. It's currently being adapted for television by HBO Max. Disha is a Kimbilio Fiction Fellow and will be the 22-23 John and Rene Grisham Writer-in-Residence at the University of Mississippi. Disha Filio, welcome to Monocle Reads. It's so lovely to talk to you. It's great to be here with you, Georgina. I am just blown away by this book, which has a, a wonderful, wonderful collection of stories, which just, I think, speaks to speaks to all women. But And we'll get into to who it was aimed at a little bit later. But it's absolutely something I feel that's at the core of all humanity. And I wanted really to start with your origin story, because so many of these uh, tales in your book are about mother-daughter relationships and family and sisterhood. So tell me about your upbringing and and how those relationships influenced you. Sure. I was sent to church. I think that's the thing that I've been sort of mulling over as I've talked a lot about my book since it came out, that I was raised in the church, but usually that means that, you know, you went to church with your family. But I was raised by my mother and my grandmother, and they did not go to church, but they sent me to church. And, you know, hindsight, I I haven't talked to them about it. They both passed away in 2005. I think that because they were both single women who had children and, and weren't married, they didn't feel welcome at church. But I guess they still felt like there was hope for me. So they sent me, you know, it's one of those regrets. I really wish I had understood more when they were still alive and could have asked them about it. So I spent a lot of time in church and I was considered myself a church lady until I was about 35. And so a lot of the foundations of how I was shaped and the questions about womanhood and about all these binaries we're taught in church about right and wrong and who we're going to be in the world and who we can be as girls and as women, all of that was shaped for me by watching the women in church and as well as the women outside of church. And I carried those questions with me into adulthood and they influenced the stories and the characters I was interested in writing about. And as you mentioned, there's a lot of mother-daughter dynamics in these stories. That was completely subconscious. I think I clearly have some things, you know, to work out that I needed to work out through those stories. As I mentioned, my own mother has passed away, but that relationship was definitely the most foundational, significant relationship in my life. And also like in one of the stories called Dear Sister, it's about five half-sisters and that's me, not the story itself, but I do have four half-sisters. And did you get the sense that even though your your mother and your grandmother felt that perhaps they wouldn't be welcome at church, that they were still women of faith? Yes, absolutely. And that's evidenced in the fact that they sent me. So they weren't rejecting the church's teachings. They weren't rejecting, you know, the double standards and the hypocrisy and the shaming and all of that that made them feel unwelcome. They still were were very much, they were believers, but unfortunately didn't feel 
like there was a place for them until much later. Oddly enough, once I was in, I think I had gone to college or maybe after college, my mother started going to church, which was, you know, kind of strange. But for the longest time, I think they still embraced those teachings for better or for worse and had hoped that I would would be saved, you know, in the parlance of the church. Mm. Now, you talked a little earlier about the church shaping people's lives and mm-hmm. telling women what they could be, but it seems that that was more restrictive than, than encouraging. Yes, it's definitely restrictive, and, and it's restrictive because it's often binary. You know, you're going to go to heaven or hell. You can be a good girl or a bad girl. You know, the Madonna whore in, in our, you know, popular culture, which is, you know, taken straight from the church's teachings. So it's very restrictive. And that's where the secrets come up, you know, because we don't live, most of us don't live binary lives, or we can, you know, drive ourselves mad trying to fit into one or the other box when most of us live somewhere in between or both. And so when we try to navigate those spaces, I think for a lot of women, we do dare to disrupt what we've been taught. But a lot of times we do it secretly. And sometimes that's to our peril. Mm. I mean, you clearly transcended any kind of restrictive grip by the church. You were, in fact, the first person in your family to go to university and not just any university. It was Yale. Yes. So I was transcending and also I was being a good girl, too. You know, I didn't have children until I was married and I married heterosexually. You know, I did all of the things that were expected and all of the things, you know, I could check the boxes, you know, that the church would have us check. And yet I was not happy. I was not content. I did not come into myself when I was doing all of the things right. So, you know, I don't regret my children or, or anything like that. But part of my evolution was deciding for myself who I wanted to be and not have those decisions and my my choices rooted in other people's expectations or the, I didn't coin this, but the, the unholy trinity of the church, fear, guilt, and shame. Hmm. You know, when I stopped living my life according to those things and according to the church's expectations, you know, what's possible? And it's like, there's a whole world of possibility. So that's who who I have become was not in the plan initially. Now, you majored in economics, but that really wasn't to your liking. <laughs> not at all. I was being practical. Like I think a lot of first-generation college students are, this idea that you go to college and explore and learn and figure out who you want to be, that was not what I saw the way you know college was presented to me. You go to college to get a good job, to make a lot of money, to have the kind of stability that I didn't have growing up. And I, you know, didn't know a lot about what was, what options were, you know, the arts, absolutely not. I was not going to be a starving artist. Um, I enjoyed writing, but I never considered at that time doing it as a profession. So, you know, I looked at the, you know, medicine and law and all of those kinds of professions and none of them felt like a good fit for me. So I figured business was was broad enough and Yale doesn't have an undergraduate business major. So I thought, hey, economics, that's close enough, right? It's not, <laughs> but I didn't know that. So <laughs> that's how I became an econ major. But how did you then start writing fiction? I was a stay-at-home mom of a toddler who never took naps. And I had done my first 
job out of college, you know, business and hated it. I cried every day for like nine months. And then I became an elementary school teacher, which I did love. And then when my then husband and I decided to start a family, we decided that I would stay home with our child, who is our oldest daughter. And And I'm just going to interrupt you there and ask, do you think that decision was influenced by your early upbringing, that that was the way that, that you had been brought up to think that women should behave? No, absolutely not. Uh, for Black women, you know, who have always worked in this country, you know, voluntarily and involuntarily, the idea of being able to stay at home with your child was like revolutionary, you know, and, and very distinct, but not always well received because I was college educated, you know, and like a lot of women and not just Black women in the U.S., it's this question of, well, why would you waste your education, staying at home with your children. And again, there's that binary that you're either going to do this or you're going to do that. And not this idea that we live our lives on a spectrum and that we are, you know, works in progress. And, you know, what we're doing now may not be the thing that we're always doing. And so, you know, staying at home wasn't the expectation. The expectation was that I would be out somehow conquering the world as a capitalist and, you know, making a lot of money. And so even when I told my mother that I was going back to school to get my master's in teaching so that I could teach elementary school, she immediately said, and then you're going to become a principal, right? A school principal. Mm -hmm. You know, the idea was that I would do something big. And unfortunately, the idea of raising and shaping a human life is not considered big. You know, I consider it one of, you know, the biggest jobs, which is why I wanted to do it. Yeah. But here you are with this toddler that doesn't sleep. (laughs) So you start writing. Right. Because I was like going to lose it. I was not getting the kind of stimulation my own brain needed. You know, my daughter was well stimulated, so much so that she never wanted it to end. And so I, you know, would lock myself up in, in the study for just 30 minutes a day in the beginning. And she would be on the other side of the door, like crying. And and I would be on my computer crying and typing and trying to get lost in these worlds of stories. But it, you know, it was a balm for me. It was an escape. It was a a sanctuary. Mm -hmm. Now, this book of short stories, The Secret Lives of Church Ladies, one of the things about it that, that I keep reading about it is that it was incredibly difficult to get it published. Now, of course, it's done very, very well indeed. But just tell us a little bit about that publishing journey. Sure. So my agent managed my expectations. She said short story collections are a hard sell. And most people in publishing will tell you that, and it's true. And that fact has been borne out on the other side where readers tell me, I don't like short stories, but I like this collection, or I never read a collection before until now. So there seems to not, for whatever reason, not be a real market for short story collections the way there is for novels or, you know, for nonfiction. And I don't know why that is, but the publishing world responds to that by not really being all that excited about short story collections, unless it's like attached to a novel. And, you know, and so there's like a two book deal situation, but I didn't have that, you know, I just had these stories. And, and so my agent made it clear that, you know, this was not going to be like some kind of slam dunk. So I went into the whole process of, you know, hoping to, to get a book deal for this collection with very low expectations. And I also was very prepared to publish the book myself. If I didn't get a book deal or if I got one, but somehow I would 
if I was going to be asked, as I knew some Black writers were, to whitewash the stories or to, you know, imagine a primary reader who was white and translate, you know, Black culture or Black Southern culture for them. I, I had this in my head that I would not spend the advance. I would hold on to it so I could dramatically give it back and publish the book myself, you know, the way I wanted to publish it. Thankfully that, you know, that didn't happen, but the book did get rejected everywhere except for West Virginia University Press, who uh, loved it from the beginning and who ultimately published it. And it's really interesting what you say about race, because one of the way you describe the the story collection is unapologetically black. Tell us what you mean by that. So, you know, I am just in awe of of Toni Morrison and her work, uh, like so many of us are. And in her career, she was asked about centering Black life and writing almost exclusively about Black people. But even, you know, when she did write about white people, they were not centered in, in her work. And, you know, she always had a great response for the reporters who talked of, you know, referred to her as provincial, her writing, her, her stories as provincial because she focused on Black life. And, and so I learned from watching Toni Morrison that it is not limiting to, to write these stories and to write these specifics that, as you noted at the top of the show, they're specific stories that have this universal appeal and, and access. And so to me, writing the stories that are unapologetically Black means precisely that, that, you know, I don't waver at all, that these are the stories that I'm writing and these are the people that I'm writing about. And I don't have any hesitation or fear that somehow that I'm limiting myself or that my work is lesser or less than because these are the people that I choose to focus on. Mm. And what's really interesting, too, is it is very specifically geographical or very Mm -hmm. geographically specific in that it's set in the south of the United States, although, in fact, you're no longer based there. No, I'm not. And I've lived in Pittsburgh, where I am now, for 25 years. I've lived here half my life. I've lived here longer than I lived in the South because I was born and raised in Jacksonville, Florida. And then at 18, I went away to college and I haven't lived in the South full time since then. But in my heart and in my way of being, I still identify as a Southerner. Pittsburgh has not been home for me in the way that the South has been despite how long I've actually been here. And so I feel like my sensibilities, I I lost my accent even, but it's still inside, you know, those are still my roots. And so when I sat down to conjure stories and to imagine, it was those black Southern women, church women and outside of the church women and the backyard and the kitchens and all of those places that I, when I leaned into my memory, into my nostalgia, that's where it took me. Mm. Now, it would seem to me that none of these women are really getting the solace and support and love from the church that perhaps mm-hmm. non-believers imagine is the role of the institution, that in fact, yes. we're talking about something completely opposite to that. Yes. And, you know, the one time I asked my grandmother you know, why she didn't go to church, but sent me. And I only asked once because she made it clear she didn't really want to answer the question. Um, She said, I'll go when I get 
right, when I get myself together. And even as an eight or nine-year-old, it struck me that, you know, I thought the church was the place where you did go to get yourself together and to get right and, and to find that comfort, you know, as you said. And that has ultimately, you know, why I walked away from the church was because I didn't get that either, you know, when, when I really needed it and, and it was a time of grief for me. And it wasn't around anything, you know, sexual or any of the double standards. I just sort of looked at the church and said, you know, there are all of these promises that it doesn't deliver on. And so I didn't find that that comfort there. And likewise, you know, my characters are grappling with that. And so one of the things that's been most surprising to me about the response to the book is that I've heard from church folks. I've been invited virtually to speak to church groups and to take part in church book clubs and pastor women past black women pastor book clubs and you know they're not trying to burn me at the stake or anything they want to hear you know about my experiences at the church and they're really interested in the stories that are reflected because they know that these stories reflect real life for a lot of women and so I'm excited that the stories have kind of sparked some conversations, what I, I, I feel are healing conversations for folks in the church about how the church can do better. And I was the guest of a 168-year-old Baptist church in Virginia for their virtual anniversary celebration. And as a book club, church book club, they read my book. And I was with four generations of uh, members of that congregation. And the older members in particular um, were very struck by the stories. I mean, you know, it was a little uncomfortable for them to read. Uh, some of it was very shocking in that it was, you know, graphic, you know, some of the sex is explicit. But the question they had for me was, you know, how can we do better? How can the church be more of a place of solace and comfort? And I'm just so thankful that my stories did spark that awareness and those conversations. And were those conversations largely with women or were men who are mostly in your stories, the ones who are behaving badly, uh, were they joining in those conversations? So most of the conversations with church folks have been with women, but the church that invited me, their pastor is a man and he has since taught sermons based on stories in my collection. And I think there were a few men on the, um, when I attended their virtual celebration, there were a few men from the congregation, but it was mostly women. But some of the earlier readers um, from my book were men, Black men, inside and outside of the church. And it was great to have hear from them about the experience of reading a book where men aren't centered. So I think it's a I think it's fair to say that there's a mix, you know, there are men who aren't behaving well in the, in the stories, but then there are some who are, you know, Eric in How to Make Love to a Physicist and Uncle Bird and and Dear Sister, but what's true for all of the men is that they are not centered. Even in the love story, um, How to Make Love to a Physicist, it was very important to me that Lyra have this journey and that Eric kind of be in her orbit, but he was not her son, <laughs> you know, and the healing that she did, she did apart from him. Mm-hmm. Uh, food is another theme that comes up quite a mm-hmm. lot throughout. Unpick that for us, if you will. Yes, I was just talking about this yesterday with a, an African author, and, and we were talking about food in, in um, both of our books and why that is. And, and I think because food does provide 
that comfort and that solace, right? Food doesn't let us down the way the church might. Um, and so, you know, that's a big thing for us culturally, lots of celebrations and any event that brings people together in our cultures, there's food at the center of it, whether it's a baby shower or whether it's a funeral, the meal, the repast is always central. I grew up in my household with my mother and my grandmother. And then on my dad's side, I would visit my grandparents. And in both households, there was a, a significant meal cooked every day because somebody might stop by and you couldn't stop by and not eat. And you couldn't have someone come into your home and not feed them. So there had to be enough. And so these are the kinds of things that I grew up seeing as just sort of law, as, as just rules. Like this is what it means to be in community. This is what it means to care about people. And food is also a way to connect generations, you know? And so when I cook certain foods now, I'm cooking them the way that my mother taught me or the way that my grandmother taught me, or even when I'm making a conscious decision to adapt some of those recipes so that they aren't exactly the way I was taught. But the fact that I'm even making them is because, well, this is what I grew up making. And this is, you know, this is how we celebrated these particular moments. And so passing that on to my daughter. So there, who gives us that continuity as well. Mm. And names, too, I noticed, was something that, that really came up a lot. For instance, in Not Daniel, we never learn either character's yes. name. We have another story where the great-grandmother picks names for, for each baby girl from the Bible. We have a narrator who's only daughter, but the men have names. So tell mm-hmm. us about that. So... In the story that you just mentioned, when Eddie Levert comes, you know, daughter is referred to by her role in the family, but her brothers, you know, have names. And it speaks to how for so many of us as women, we are reduced to our functions in our families and and sometimes in the larger culture. And so that was definitely an intentional choice in that story. And then I would say overall, I think names are so central, names and naming are so central to us as Black Americans because so much was stolen from us in enslavement, including our names and so our, our real names. And, and so in terms of, you know, reclaiming that, that was important to me. And then after emancipation, our, you know, formerly enslaved ancestors still had the name of the people who for generations had enslaved their families. And so the moments of choosing and making a choice when choice had been taken from us for so long. And then of course, in more contemporary times, there's a a lot of conversation around quote unquote black names and some people call it the resume name, you know, naming your child, you know, as a black folks, we're creative and we come up with creative names, but we know from social scientist studies that we can be discriminated against in hiring and in other settings just based on our name. So to me, choosing names is a kind of freedom that comes with that, even if it's rooted in something traditional like you know choosing names for, from the Bible, it's still a choice. It's a really, really wonderful collection. Do you have any plans to write longer fiction or perhaps go back to to more short stories? I'm doing both right now. In the pandemic, you know, after this, my book came out, I just knew 
oh, I'm going to go now and finish that novel. I started in 2007, the novel that I took a detour from to write Church Ladies. You know, so many things about that novel became clear to me. And I just knew how to get it right this time. And I started doing that, but the stories kept coming too. (laughs) So my answer to your question is yes, both and. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm sure whatever you produce is going to be absolutely marvellous. It's been a real joy to speak to you. Thank you so much, Disha. Thank you. The Secret Lives of Church Ladies by Disha Filiao is published by Pushkin Press. You've been listening to Monocle Reads. Thanks to the producer, Nora Hull, and researcher, Lillian Fawcett. Our studio manager was Chris Ablakwa. I'm Georgina Godwin. Thank you for listening. <laughs>